Hello again, everybody. This is Nick Fletcher at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and this is our 14th installment of Interview with a PD Pod, which is uh, exciting. Seems like it's been going well for a while now, and uh, I'm really excited about this episode, as I seem to be for all episodes. Uh, one of the great things about our society is the breadth of people who we get to interact with, and today's guest, Scott Cozen, is no different. Um, as somebody who does a lot of spine and hip surgery, I don't have a ton of overlap in the hand world, but I have seen Scott speak a number of times at IPOS and POSNA, and I've always been really impressed with him as a speaker and knowing one of his partners, Amr Samdani, incredibly well. I also know his leadership and what he's done at the Philadelphia Shrine, where he is uh, chief. So Scott is a remarkable guy who, leader of the Philly Shrine, uh, but is also a member who is both involved at a very high level within POSNA, as well as being a previous president of the Hand Society. Probably the thing that talking with Scott he's most proud of, however, is the Touching Hands Project, which is really the standard by which other both international as well as domestic outreach programs should be modeled after. This has been incredibly successful and allows Scott and his team to deliver really needed hand care to children all over the world and uh, has really done a tremendous amount of work on this. Uh, Scott is a really fun guy to talk to. I think that he's incredibly uh, easy to converse with and has a lot of great insights on leadership and practice development. And so I really enjoyed this whole process quite a bit. As always, I thank you all for your support of both this podcast as well as the former JPO, soon to be renamed podcast, which is run by Carter Clement and Craig Lauer and his their colleagues from uh, around the country. So thank you again and enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Scott Cozen from the Philadelphia Shriners Hospital. So uh, we'll welcome everybody to uh, the most uh, recent interview of the PewDiePod podcast. I have the distinct pleasure today with speaking with Scott Cozen, who is chief of staff at the Philadelphia Shrine. And uh, this is something I've been looking forward to for a while. Scott, you and I have not uh, obviously had a ton of overlap because I do predominantly spine and hip, and, and your area is one that I try to stay away from as much as possible, or at least defer on to uh, some of my partners, uh, who I'm sure you know well in the Atlanta area. But I have heard you speak numerous times, especially at IPOS, and I've always enjoyed it. And so uh, I had wanted to get you on as, as soon as I could. So thanks for doing this today. No, I appreciate the invitation. So I wanted to uh, start out like I usually do uh, to sort of figure out a little bit as to how you got here and what your journey was like, um, in particular, uh, sort of where you grew up and, and how you came about uh, ending up at uh, Duke and Hahnemann, and then really uh, what drove you into the world of Pete's hand. And then I know that you, for a while, were uh, sort of doing a combined adult pediatric practice before you moved on to the shrine. So I'd love to hear some of your background and, and how you got there. Uh, for sure. So I actually grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, my dad is from South Philly, so I'm pretty much Philadelphia grown. And then I spent most of my training in Philadelphia, other than the time that I went down and spent my undergraduate degree at Duke. And the way that happened is I, I tended to go down to North Carolina to play soccer, actually, and I wanted to play at UNC. And then my dad said, why don't you take a look at Duke? And I begrudgingly took a look at Duke, and I fell in love with the school. And then I was fortunate enough to do my undergraduate degree at Duke. 
Uh, people make fun of me because my undergraduate degree was actually in, in computer science, and I'm way behind the times. I was back when they were still doing cards and paper rather than everybody <laughs> having their own laptop. <laughs> wow. So, it's a crazy story. It was back when the IBM guy said he predicted a world would be five supercomputers and not everybody would have a Mac. So we used to go over and run our homework, actually, our assignments on the mainframe at Duke. And the only way we could do that was after 11 p.m. So it created a fun time for all us computer science nerds at night, pushing our cards to the, the mainframe and seeing whether we could figure out the equation. So that's, that was my undergrad degree. And while I was doing my undergrad degree, I spent time at Duke Physical Therapy. I actually thought I wanted to be a physical therapist first. Even though my dad's a family doctor, I really thought I wanted to be a physical therapist. And then why I did physical therapy at Duke, I suddenly realized that I thought I could do more, meaning orthopedic surgery. So that was my first glimpse into orthopedic surgery. The problem was, is I was way behind because I was now a computer science major. So I took my classes back at Penn during the summer time, and then I was able to fulfill the requirements for medical school. And then I went to Hahnemann University for medical school, which is in Philadelphia. And then after that, I was fortunate to get into a small program in Philadelphia called Albert Einstein Medical Center. And back then, it was a year of a rotating internship followed by four years of orthopedics. I, fortunately, I was able to get in orthopedics because it was the only thing I even liked in medical school. So I was despondent that I may not get in, <laughs> right? I'm sure a lot yeah. of us feel the same way. Yeah. It was one of those amazing times where you're like, this medical school isn't so much fun. And my dad tells this great story that one day I said to my father, I said, Dad, this medical school really just stinks. Right? And you went through it. And how could you let your own son go through such a miserable experience? And so my dad, to this day, still tells that story. And then, I, fortunately, I loved orthopedics, and I wanted to go so bad in orthopedics. And I was able to obtain a, a spot at Albert Einstein Medical Center out of the match, so I didn't have to go through the match and all the uncertainty. And I had a great residency. I just had this conversation before. People talk about the residency with either, you know, good or bad. I had a fantastic residency. I have a lot of friends just from my residency still, and they do all sorts of things other than hand surgery. And it was a lot of fun to do orthopedics at that time. And we really, really had a lot of laughs. And then during that time, I just also fell in love with hand surgery. It's no, there's no great epiphany. I just like hand surgery. So then I decided to do hand surgery, and I wanted to do, try and go to the best place that I could. And then I was fortunate enough to end up at the Mayo Clinic. And during my time at the Mayo Clinic is really where I met my mentors. I mean, I had some mentors at, in orthopedics, but I really met mentors at, at the Mayo Clinic. And those guys have steered me in the right direction and actually pushed me toward focusing on pediatric hand surgery. And that's, that's when I came out in the practice in 1992. Initially, there were no really pediatric hand surgery jobs. So from 1992 to 2000, I took care of adults and kids spending time at the Shriners Hospital for Children, which I had spent time during my residency. And honestly, Nick, the more time I spent taking care of kids, the less I could stomach taking care of adults. Right? <laughs> I think we've all had that, uh, that thought at one point. <laughs> right. And, and it was just an amazing thing. And then fortunately, in 2000, I was offered a job uh, to become the first full-time hand surgeon at, at the Philadelphia Shrine, which was unbelievable. But, you know, all difficult decisions, Nick, require mentorship. So the story I tell, which I think is so passionate, and it's taught me a lot about 
being a mentor on the other side is my mentor at the Mayo Clinic was a guy named Mike Wood. And Ed Mike Wood was a hand surgeon. He taught me about taking care of patients and how to handle myself professionally and personally. And he had ascended the ranks. So in, in 2000, I was trying to make this difficult decision. He was actually in charge of the Mayo Clinic. But I didn't know who to go to. I, I didn't know who to call. So I, call, I talked to Mike Wood. And I called my coach, Kay. And I called him one day. And I said, Dr. Wood, and I had an index card written out. I had like 10 questions. And I was running through the questions as fast as I could because obviously he's running the Mayo Clinic. What does he care about me? Little Scott goes in and he's running the Mayo Clinic. But I couldn't decide what to do because there were pros and cons of making such a leap. And he stops me about after question number three. And he says, stop right there. And I thought he was actually mad at me. And he said, I can see by this conversation that this is a very important decision for you and your family so I will call you at nine o'clock at night. It's, it's, wow. it's, it is amazing, Nick. Yeah. There, there I am, you know, at eight forty-five, pacing around my house, waiting for the head of the Mayo Clinic, Mike Wood, to give me a call. Hoping he didn't forget you. <laughs> exactly. I, yeah. I, assumed, I assumed he forgot me. Right. At, at, at nine o'clock, he calls me, and Nick, we just went through it. We went through, you know, what I wanted to do in my career. We went through what was happening in my trials and tribulations with my personal life, what was happening with my children. And then we spent an hour on the phone. And at the very end of the hour, he just said to me, Scott, you need to take the job. Huh. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So, so I, I took the job and with a lot of uncertainty, because I did like care, taking care of adults. I'm, I was only kidding about it. I couldn't stomach the, take care of adults. But I took the job because I thought I could really make it work. And then it was the best decision I've ever made in my, in my professional career because you know, look back 20 years and it's been a huge success at the Philadelphia Shrine and it's been a wonderful uh, career taking care of children. That's amazing. I mean, that's such a great story. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, I, I, I had this discussion last month with Dr. Wenger, with Dennis Wenger where he talked about the perfect recipe for a orthopedic surgeon is a parent who's a teacher and a parent who's an engineer. And actually this morning with one of my residents spent an hour walking through his varying interests. And we talked about, you know, he, he's one of the, the great orthopedic residents who likes everything that he's come across and the biggest challenge is which one to, to work with. And we talked about, you know, that the joints guys tend to be very uh, dogmatic and they like something that's reproducible. And I'm curious because a lot of my guests have been, you know, science or engineers. Computer science, though, especially at the time that you did it, is uh, it was is definitely novel. I mean, I've I've I remember listening to a Malcolm Gladwell podcast uh, about the story of Bill Gates, and that's you know that sort of speaks about the early times. Do you think there's anything about that, about that, the mindset? Because I, there's there's a meticulousness to especially early computer programming. I'm sure it's still there um, now that, that really sort of brings you around to hand surgery. Because my experience with hand surgery is that you that it is truly the, the area that requires probably the most attention to detail. No, I think you're right. I think computer science back at that time was very fastidious. I mean, this is 1982, so we were still doing a lot of the coding itself in the bits and bytes. It was not nearly as sophisticated. So you had to have attention to detail. And I think that does correlate with hand surgery. I think they both are similar with reference to attention to detail. 
And, and they both required trying to figure it out. There was nothing worse, Nick, than putting all these cards into the computer, this mainframe, right, and waiting for these large perforated sheets to come out. And they came out and they said, oh, error. Some one error. code, right? One right. Little, yeah. <laughs> yeah. One little code. And it was like just so devastating because now you had to retype the cards. You had to go back to the mainframe. You had to put them back in. And that repetition – uh, was uh, was useful for hand surgery actually because I do think hand surgery is about repetition. I tell my residents and fellows, we're going to do this operation, we're going to do the operation the same way, we're going to use the same retractors, and we're going to do it exactly the way that we've done it. We're not going to we're not going to go off on a tangent just because we feel like going off on a tangent. Now there are obviously operations that require innovative thinking in the midst of it, like a brachial plexus surgery. But simple, straightforward things should be done in a repetition way. And the other person I learned that from was Larry Schneider, who was a hand surgeon at, at Jefferson. And I, I rotated with uh, Dr. Schneider when I was a resident, and he was so fastidious about the way he did hand surgery. So some of his teachings have spilled over into my teachings. You know, it, it's always like, you know, when we say we stand on the shoulder of giants, and Larry Schneider was a giant. But I hear Larry Schneider in my brain sometimes when I'm teaching my fellows to do the same operation the same way. Right. It, it's amazing. When I was a fellow in Dallas, I spent, I, you know, knowing that I would never really go into that area, but I spent some time with Mary Beth Ozaki and Scott Oishi. Uh, we had some good cases. You can ask Scott offline about some of those. But um, but I, I, I looked to them for that component, knowing, again, that I, my, I wasn't going to ever do a policization at least – uh, hopefully not. Uh, but but looking at the attention to detail that they put into it, I think has helped me in, you know, my area of spine surgery where there's a, you know, probably a similar level of attention. I, I want to get uh, to, because you, you, you sort of, you're, you're doing, by the way, a great job of segueing into all the notes that you've not seen that have sort of where I wanted this conversation to go, but you talked about innovation. And you know, hearing about your practice, obviously your background at Mayo, I think was a little bit of a setup for, for a innovative practice because uh, knowing that that experience reasonably well through friends and uh, colleagues of mine, there's a level of innovation that's needed to manage problems that they see. But the first you know decade of your practice was probably a little bit more bread and butter stuff, I'm guessing. And then you've moved into an area where you've done a tremendous amount in brachial plexus. You've obviously done the first, you know, hand transplant. Um, and so I'm curious how you see innovation, how you bring it into your practice. And then as an institution, the Shriners, which has obviously supported in my world uh, what Amr and Josh are doing with, uh, with tethering, which, again, is incredibly innovative in the spine world. How, you know, from an institutional side, you've been able to, to uh, embrace innovation. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. So I think you can't rest on your laurels when you're thinking about your, what your, your career and what you're doing. And, you know, Coach K from Duke is, is one of, also another one of my mentors, and I've been fortunate to spend time with Coach K. And he says you can never be satisfied. And the instant that you become satisfied, you become complacent. And think how this guy has, done, has won how many championships, and that's directly from Coach K. And I think that's the way we, when I say we, I mean in Philadelphia especially, look at our practices. So we've boutiqued our practice years ago. You know, we have two hand surgeons, three lower extremity surgeons, three fantastic spine surgeons like you mentioned. And we push each other. We push each other for innovation. It's kind of a friendly competition you know, who can do more from an innovative standpoint, but we're always thinking about ways to 
better our patients and to better the way we teach people and to better the surgeries that we do. And it's just ingrained, in, at least in us in Philadelphia. And Nick, you had experience that with uh, Texas Scottish Rite. I mean, yeah. as, you, as you mentioned, Mary Beth Izaki is a dear friend of mine, and she is incredibly caring and incredibly talented. Um, I spent time with Scott Oishi, too. I also spent a lot of time with Peter Carter, who was uh, before Scott Oishi. And those guys have been innovative. And it's that circle of friends that you have, both locally and internationally and nationally, that push you to innovate. And, and you're the same in your practice. We need to continue to think of better ways to care for our patients. And that's what leads to innovation. Yeah, I agree. How, how do you, how do you, because um, you mentioned teaching, how do you bring your trainees into innovation within your practice? Because I think one of the biggest challenges, um, and I'm sure Amr and Josh and Steve did this early on with the tethering, is that there's a lot that you, that your residents and fellows look to you for with regards to letting them participate in cases. But when you're innovating at the level that you guys have been doing it at, it's hard to allow that. You end up having to sort of take everything over. Um, and I worry about that with our trainees. How have you balanced that? No, I agree. And I think what you have to do is, is you, we tell the residents and fellows who's going to do what on any given day. Right. So in other words, uh, we have a six month fellow now and she is up to the point where she now exposes the brachial plexus, exposes the nerve roots. And then and then typically myself or Dr. Zlatola will Dan Zlatola will, will take over from that point. So it's this progression of allowing them to do more without doing harm. But it's easier said than done. Right. We've all been there where something bad has happened because a little bit of misinformation or miscommunication. But as we do this more and more, we kind of learn how to keep them out of harm's way. And, and you're good at, good at, Amr's good at it, Josh is good at it. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but you have to give them more and more responsibility over time. Same thing with uh, residents. I think residents are interesting, actually. So if we have a day where there may be a fracture that we're going to fix or a simple osteotomy of the humorous. We will tell the fellow, this is not your case. This is a resonant level case. And there's two choices. Either I can take the resonant through, through it, or you can take the resonant through it. But you need to let them do this operation. So we try and delegate what we do on any given day. But I do worry because I do worry they're not getting enough hands-on experience, especially with limitations in time and other responsibilities. But we're going to keep pushing forward. We pride ourselves in our education of our residents and fellows, as long as the fellows don't take everything away from the residents. Yeah, absolutely. But, but you know, my guess is when you speak so fondly of Einstein, in part, that's because of the experience that you got. And I speak highly of Vanderbilt, where I trained for residency, because, you know, it is very much a boots on the ground, uh, blue collar uh, a residency in many areas. And that's, that's the thing that we try to balance out at Emory, which is also, you know, very much a hardworking residency. Yeah. No, I think there's nothing like hard work when you're a resident and we see the same thing. We have residents from a bunch of different programs in the city uh, that will go unnamed, but those programs that allow their residents to do stuff earlier on produce better residents. I, I think that's just the way it is. I don't know how else to say it. And those residents where their operative experience and even their education is dilute because there's so many of them, uh, we need to be more careful with what we allow them to do and not to do. I, I agree, Nick. I mean, you and I are both lucky. We trained at programs where we just went at it. 
you know, and right, we and but we went at it. We were careful, we just, but we went at it. There wasn't all the dilution in these larger programs. I agree a hundred percent. So uh, I want to speak a little bit more about the Shriners because, uh, in addition to being the first hand surgeon on the podcast, you're also the first Shriners physician, and you've been really an exceptional leader at a, a really exceptional place for a long time. And uh, you know, I don't, obviously, leadership is something that some people are more born with than others, but I, a lot of it's learned. I'm curious if you have sort of comments or thoughts on the journey towards your position and maybe some advice or thoughts that you might have for other people who are, you know, along that journey um, uh, as they're coming along? So I think it's a great question, Nick. I think people assume that good physicians are good leaders. And you and I know that is not the case. And if you decide to go into leadership, you need to invest the time and effort in, into becoming a leader. So first and foremost, many of us, you know, you know, walk to walk and talk to talk. I think that's first and foremost to become a leader. You can't be, for example, a non-operative orthopedic leader. That never works. Now, we, you and I have probably both seen it. Uh, I've, I've seen it on a couple occasions, and I learned very early on that's just not going to happen. It doesn't give you any street credit. That's another Coach K statement. You need street credit, and to be street credit, you need to be, you know, in the trenches taking care of patients and operating. So that's first and foremost. But then you need to develop the skill set. And if you don't work on developing the skill set, I, I think you may fail, unfortunately. So we, when I say we, let me back up. So uh, Amir Sandani and I took over the Philadelphia Shrine in 2012. Um, I'm chief of staff and he's chief of surgery. The reason we have different titles is because uh, we were forced into this leadership position and, right. And and I said, why don't we just both be chief of staff? And the Shrine Hospital said, no, that's in the bylaws. There's one only one chief of staff. I said, well, can he be chief of surgery? And they said, well, there's no such a position. I said, perfect. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's that's a true story, too. Yeah, there is. So he wasn't allowed to be co-chief of staff, but for some reason he was allowed to be chief of surgery. So then in 2012, we, you know, we took over, over the reins. And over time, we have uh, you know, built this program even better than it was before. But we've clearly made a lot of mistakes in, in leadership. And I had an administrator at that time who helped me you know, learn about leadership. And I do think some of the previous experience, like running the hand side, which we'll, we'll talk about, helps. And, and the hand association helps. But I do think I've taken courses. And I've asked people for advice. And I've asked people what I did well in that meeting and what I did not do well. The great thing about Samdani, who I call a brother from a different mother, is he is not afraid to tell me, and I'm not afraid to tell him, well, that meeting didn't go very well, did it? So I, I don't know how else to say it, but it's such a funny thing. And especially in a system like the Shrine, they like to promote people to the level of incompetence. Right, <laughs> like any great organization, any big organization, right? Yeah. And they do it all the time. And I, I keep trying to say to people, I, kn I know you want to be promoted, and I know you want to make more money, right? Which is a good thing, but if you don't have the qualities and attributes to succeed in that position, you're going to fail, and that's going to be pra that's pro that's problematic for you and your family. So I. I think leaders, some are born, but most of us have to work on it pretty darn hard. And I've seen a lot of it with, with people like Mike Wood or people like Coach K, 
Um, Scott Levin down the street is also a, a very powerful, different type of leader, very dogmatic. But yet you take good and bad from different people and then you apply them to the way that you lead your particular organization. Yeah, you know, you mentioned uh, and, and, you know, we were talking about preparation earlier, but you, you mentioned the uh, the courses and you've probably read books and then there's a lot of on the job and it, it you know, it sort of mimics, if you will, surgical planning. So, you know, I read for big cases, but so much of what I do in the operating room or in the clinic or what have you is based on prior experience. Are there any courses that have been really helpful? Are there any books that have been really, really helpful? And then at the end of the day, how much do you think they help versus just this is something you have to grow organically over time? So the courses that have helped me have been run by a guy named Glenn Tecker. And I have no vested interest. It's T-E-C-K-E-R. I've taken a couple of his courses. So they've been extremely helpful. And he's a national guy or he's it, a local guy? National. Okay. You know, he's a national guy. His courses are really good. There are a lot of hands-on, you know, you're all together in a room, which we hope we'll do one day soon. Right. And, and, it's a, and I've taken the, two of his courses, which have been very helpful. The other thing that's interesting, Nick, is the Hand Society has this great, I, great concept, is that when you get appointed to the board or council, whatever you want to call it, you, you actually take a Tecker course, right? Because Mark Anderson, who is the leader of the Hand Society, knows that surgeons are not necessarily good players or know how to function on a board. He calls them, you know, Robert's Rules, right? Right. And then as you move up and you, as you become vice president or president-elect, I can't remember, you take the course, a different course, a different Tecker course again, but you take it with Mark Anderson, who's been CEO of the Hansite for 20 years, who also teaches courses himself. Wow. So, yeah, exactly. So I've learned a lot about leadership from both the Tecker courses and from Mark Anderson directly because he is such a good leader. He's such a fair leader. And he's taught me a lot about how to make difficult decisions and how to act on those decisions. But I, I just need one more thing, and, I, and I'll let this go. I think most people who are listening to this podcast maybe don't want to be leaders, but those that do want to be leaders, it's a work in progress. I think I'm, I'm better now than I was five years ago, but I think I have a lot to learn. Back to Coach K for one second, Nick. I, I heard this great question of Coach K where he said, someone asked Coach K, so when you make a decision and it ends up being wrong, what do you do? And he said, you own it. You own that decision because you made it the best decision you did at the time and it, and it may be incorrect. So if we make a bad decision at work, we own it. We don't run away from it. We don't say, oh, uh, uh, yeah, 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 all that kind of stuff. We just own it. And I think that's been extremely important. And the other thing that Samdani and I try and lead by is the institution trumps any individual. Right. I mean, you've heard that. So it's such a great line. And I, I think a lot of our guys have really, really good ideas, right? But it may not be the right time for the institution or it may not align with the institution. And that response to them is just fair. I, I get, I hear what you're saying. I think it's a really good idea. It just doesn't align with the institution or we can't do it right now because of resources. I think that's a good leadership principle. 
So let's talk about the institution. So for those of us outside of the shrine who've never really spent time at the shrine, now granted, again, TSRH probably isn't that far off and maybe sort of a, a, a super concentrated, like uh, like a frozen fruit juice. It's, it's shrine concentrate because it's one institution. But what do you think have been uh, some of the biggest changes that have occurred in the Shriner system since you started? Yeah, so the shrine, as, as people may or may not know, started in the 20s. It was 1923 was the first shrine. And what happened is the Masons decided that instead of giving money to a bunch of charities, their one charitable organization was going to be these hospitals. So they set up these hospitals around the country. Now, people ask me all the time, why is a hospital located in Erie? And why is a hospital located in Treefort, for example, which was the first one in 1923? And the answer is pretty simple, actually is when the guy became the potentate or the grand poobah, he said, I want a hospital. That's what happened. So they would build a hospital wherever he was, and they would support that hospital. And then the guy coming up would say, well, if I'm going to support your hospital in Shreveport, I want one in Erie. So these hospitals are located in very weird areas sometimes, mainly because of the how they were built. But currently, give or take, there's 22 hospitals, 20 United States, one in Mexico City, and one in Canada. And they provide care regardless of anyone's ability to pay. And believe it or not, prior to 2008, nobody was charged, regardless of how much money you had, regardless of the insurance you had. And then in 2008, we all know what happened, and the endowment just got crushed. So the endowment was about $9 billion, and it went to $4 billion, and it looked like the shrine was going to have to close. And then back to your leadership principle, some leaders down at the headquarters of the shrine right, came in and said, listen, guys, we have to borrow money rather than sell our stock, and we have to turn the ship around. So at that time, some Donnie and I were worried about the shrine, right? And we actually were going to leave. And we both got a contract in the mail. No, but this is a great story. So we both had a contract in the mail. And my wife says to me, or my wife's name is Louise, well, when are you going to sign that contract? And I said, well, I'm going to sign it tomorrow. Some Donnie's doing the same thing, right? <laughs> this is classic. And then the next day goes by, when are you going to sign the contract? Oh, I'm going to sign it. <laughs> right, right. And then like four or five days go by. And I said to somebody, did you sign the contract? He goes, I don't think I can sign the contract. I said, I don't think I could sign the contract either. So him and I shook hands and said, we're going to ride it out. If it falters, it falters. If it doesn't falter, we'll be together the rest of our career. So that was in 2008. So then what happened is that they turned it around. So they started to collect insurance from those people who have insurance, which helped a little bit actually. But what really helped is, is the whole concept of borrowing the money rather than selling the stock. And now the endowment is about back to about $9 billion. The problem now is they spend about $2 million a day on free care. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of money to spend, even with an endowment of $9 billion. Um, fortunately, currently donations are strong, but we'll have to wait and see what happens over time. And, they're con and as you know, they're consolidating some of the Shriners. Some are becoming clinics rather than full standing hospitals because they're in very weird places. And we hope they'll be around for the next 200 years. 
So I guess that sort of answers my question as to how they stay flexible and sustainable. Um, but it, they, they truly are, it sounds like, changing the paradigm by which you know, they're, they're operating, not, not the ability to care for all children, but just how, how they're going about doing that. Correct. So now they are collecting some monies, which helps. And they've, they've also are advertising. I'm sure most people who are listening will notice they see Shriners ads. For some reason, they were against advertising and promoting the Shrine. We always say it was the best hidden secret you could ever imagine. But now they've increased their advertising efforts, which is more than reasonable. It, Shrine does great things. And that's also helped with bringing more monies, which has been helpful. The little boy with OI, who's the spokesman, is, I mean, he's a goldmine. That kid is the cutest kid ever. Yeah, Alex is a, is a kid from the Chicago Shrine. Yeah. He, he has been such a stud for us, you know, and he's so interactive. And Alex is actually aging out of the system. So they have a, I know, it's a, it's a tragedy. Yeah. No more Alex the teddy bear with a blanket. So now they're working on a couple new Alexes, and they have a couple in the pipeline. But he, you know, he looks like he's young, but he's older than eighteen. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. he's 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 a great kid. One of my good friends, Alfred Mansour, who's here behind me at Vandy, is prominently featured in those ads. So I see him a bit. Um, uh, I'm curious, and and I know that you're in a, a position of leadership, so you may w- want to stay mum on it. But what do you think right now is the biggest shortcoming within the Shrine system, and is are there ways that you guys as a as a whole are, are working to to ameliorate those those shortcomings? Yeah, I, I think the Shrine does have some shortcomings, and I think it's an old organization. And you know the what's that statement? It's like a dinosaur. If it doesn't mutate, it goes extinct, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I think the Shrine has trouble keeping pace because it's set up in this old-fashioned, non-limber type of apparatus where everything runs through the headquarters. So I think a, a big challenge for the Shrine is going to make them – more adaptable in a, in a quicker way or quicker function. I mean, we're going to, I'll give you one quick example. You know, we're still using Skype for business as our telehealth, which is old and clanky. Right. Right. And so rather than just get a new vendor, they have a, you know, RFP and, and it's been about what, almost a year now. And we still don't have a new vendor. It's that kind of, it seems small, but as you know, from a surgical standpoint, that it has to be nimble and it has to be easy and you can't go, click on a link and then go somewhere else and get it. So I think that's one of the challenges of the Shrine. I think the second challenge, obviously, is the money. It's like we spoke about. Uh, They're going to have to do something with some of the hospitals that are relatively low volume, and they are actively doing that. Like Erie now has moved into just an outpatient center. That's one example. And and the third thing, it's, it's, it's really the old leadership model, Nick. It's unbelievable how there is a stranglehold on local decisions. So I think that's one of the big problems. Mm -hmm. If we want anything that's more than $5,000, we need to get permission from headquarters. It doesn't matter, you know, that our budget is almost 50 million. Is anything over 5,000, we need to get permission from headquarters. It doesn't sound like a problem, but it's a problem. Yeah, that's, I mean, and nothing costs less than $5,000. Nothing. Your tractor is like $5,000, so. No, and if our our C-arm breaks and we need a $5,000 part or $6,000 part, they have this thing called emergency capital, which they do do, but that responsibility should be local. That responsibility should not be something that has to go through headquarters. 
So it's a little bit of an antiquated system. I guess that's the best word. And it's not nimble. And I, I, I see that being a considerable shortcoming. Gotcha. So I want to move on to uh, another great organization, or actually organizations, which would be one that I'm familiar with, POSNA, and the other are the ASSH. And you mentioned that you were the president um, of ASSH, but I know that you've got a lot of love for and involvement in POSNA. And I'm sort of curious what you feel like the pediatric hand surgeon's role within the ASSH is, and then what a hand surgeon in general's role is within POSNA. And I asked that again as somebody who sort of double dips into the SRS and POSNA, both of which I think have roles in my life, but very different feels to them as organizations. Very different feels. And I see it from our spine surgeons also. So back to Mary Beth Azaki, who we spoke about early, she has always said uh, that POSNA should be the home of the pediatric hand surgeon. It's a super interesting statement. Yep. Meaning that the cultures are more aligned than the American Society for Surgery of the Hand or the ASSH. And I think she's right because like likes like. And I think pediatric hand surgeons are more like pediatric orthopedic surgeons than they are like the, the typical hand surgeon. Interesting, isn't it? So the we, meaning the pediatric hand surgeons, feel extremely comfortable at PASA. We feel we're like we're with our peeps, Right. We, we are comfortable at the hand society, but on a different realm. We have a lot of friends and a lot of colleagues, but they don't have the same heart and soul as the pediopods. It's, it's fascinating, actually. Yeah, so it's the same thing in spine. It's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing, right? So I'm, I'm sure you're the same. If you're at SRS, you're comfortable, right? But if you're at POSNA with, your, with the pediatric hand surgeons, with Dan, Sukati, and others, you're really comfortable, right? I think that's yeah. the difference, right? And um, I, so I think that people like Don Bay and Peter Waters and, and hand surgeons that take care of kids will migrate toward POSNA if there's an opportunity. And the more opportunities for hand surgeons in POSNA, the more pediatric hand surgeons will move toward POSNA. Yeah, I agree. Now, obviously, you know, you, I'm going to say you guys as, as sort of a, a conglomerate of Pete's hand surgeons are, are likely very much involved both in the hand society and in, in POSNA. But one of the things that, that comes up around here in Georgia, as you know, we've got a, a, a relatively small group. I think that uh, uh, they've got five or six now, uh, very talented Pete's hand surgeons, but they can't cover the entire state. Um, and so as, as pediatric hand surgery becomes increasingly specialized, um, how do we allow for surgeons in, say, a less populated area, I'm going to say South Georgia, to have access to pediatric hand uh, to allow them to feel comfortable enough to care for some sort of smaller hand issues, you know, ganglions, fractures, simple syndactylies, when hand may be less of their fellowship training in the adult center? Yeah, another great question. So we will sit down with our... Are actually primarily our fellows who are going into hand surgery. And if they're in a remote area, we will tell them what we think is appropriate for them to do and to tackle and, and what is probably not appropriate and probably deserves a referral. So if they wanted to refer that from southern Georgia up into to see, you know, Josh Ratner at Atlanta, that would be fine. So I think it is interesting. There are certain things, just like you mentioned, Fractures are on the, totally within their valley week. Simple syndactyly, trigger digits, even some duplicated thumb. But when you get into complex operations like pulsation, 
I think they're going to have to travel. Now, when I say that, it, it sounds like I'm in you know, the ivory tower, but we have the means, meaning the Shriners has the means, to help these people with transportation. So since we started the bill in 2010, the hospital can't help with the transportation, but the fraternal side can. If the hospital helps with the transportation. Yeah, interesting, isn't it, right? So we use the fraternal side to help with the transportation, or we use our NGOs to help with the transportation. Right. And especially, yeah, especially during the pandemic, you know, the NGOs, uh, they have money to spare. So they're willing to fly people in for difficult problems uh, to Philadelphia and house them, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there are limitations as to what the hand surgeon, that the occasional pediatric hand surgeon should and shouldn't do, should and should not do. Yeah. Now, how, how does that work with recertification? Is there... If you're a peds hand surgeon, then there's probably a lot of adult stuff that that is totally not germane to your to your uh, everyday life. But at the same time, you know, having either me wax poetical about uh, uh, politicization or you speak about pedicle screw placement probably isn't useful either. So, how does that recertification look in the future for pediatric hand surgeons? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know actually. You know, the 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 board, you know, the ABOS has a fair large a fair amount of hand representation. I haven't heard any concept or any talk about some type of specialization just for the pediatric hand surgeon. So currently we still take the, the normal CAQ or whatever it's called now for hand surgery to get recertified. Do you guys do the same thing? Do you, is there a spine exam? No, there's not a spine exam. Um, you know, we, we typically go through uh, the general peds right now. But obviously, sports has done has done it a little bit differently, and I think that's that that probably is more for uh, protection of their practice rather than anything else. Yeah, I think it's an evolving process. I think the board has the work cut out for them because as we subspecialize more, recertification is going to be more challenging for the the super subspecialized person. I I, I concur. Yeah. Now, uh, sort of with all that in mind, what does the hand society or I guess positive hand leadership feel makes a successful PEDS hand training program? And what is needed in a successful just generalized program? I mean, do you have to have a lot of brachial plexus? Um, you know, what, what goes into that? Yeah, Nick, so that's a fantastic question. And we've kind of worked through this on a non-formal process. So there are a few six-month fellowships around the country right now. Uh, there's one with us in Philadelphia. There's one in Cincinnati with Roger Cornwall and Kevin Little. Then there's one in Sacramento, which has uh, Michelle James and Claire Mansky. And then there's one at Texas Scottish Rite with Scott Oishi. And what they have decided, again, nothing formal, but they've decided that for individuals to spend six months doing pediatric hand surgery, they need to do a hand surgery fellowship first. Right. Right, so, so we tried, whatever, how many years ago, five or six years ago, allowing it in a different path and found that the fellow at that time that came in without a year of hand just didn't have enough foundation to quickly ascend a pyramid to become a competent pediatric hand surgeon. So I think if somebody wants to focus on hand surgery, uh, they're going to have to do it in that path. So our current fellow, our six-month fellow, uh, spent a year with Amy Moore and Susan McKinnon in St. Louis. Next year's six-month hand fellow, fellow 
is spending a year with uh, Jim Chang and colleagues in Stanford. And right. I, think th I think that's the way we're going to have to do it. But it's a great, I'm sure you struggle with the same thing when it comes to pedicle screws and tethers. It's, it's hard to figure out how to educate them appropriately where they're competent and confident. Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, you look at a lot of sort of the models that are out there, um, you know, uh, Larry Lenke and, and Mike Vitale have developed this sort of complex spine fellowship that, you know, you have to be uh, either a, a fellowship trained neurosurgeon or pediatric orthopedic surgeon with a, a big spine uh, focus or even be in practice. And then, you know, uh, young Joe Kim and uh, Mike Millis and uh, the group up in Boston for years had the advanced hip uh, fellowship. I think that is has to be the way for people who really want to subspecialize. As much as I love my experience in Dallas, you know, we do we did uh, like at the time maybe 125 spines total for the year, which uh, is probably nowadays not quite adequate. I know they've they've ramped up a lot. They've added a lot of faculty, but that's probably not quite adequate to get trained um, in modern times in spine and and to go out and really do the, the most complex stuff. Even though they've got a tremendous group there. No, and I think it is an added hardship. You know, I get it for those uh, individuals who have to spend an extra whatever, six months or, or a year, but I think it's worth it. I think it's worth it for them to do that extra time if that's what they want to do. You know, and as you know, people like, you know, Dan Cicado, who who can do anything in the hip and everything in the spine, have tremendous experience, but you have to train with a guy like that to become very, very confident and competent. Yeah. And Dan also went and trained with Professor Gans. You know, it wasn't, it, this wasn't something that was all just obtained uh, in a year of training. So I, I agree. And it's something as somebody who I honestly mimics a lot of Dan's practice in my own that, you know, is a, is a constant uh, betterment struggle where you're try constantly trying to, to, you know, stay fresh and, and stay uh, up on, on, on a number of different techniques. So I get it. No, but Nick, the other point to make is it is it is lifelong learning. So we push our guys to obtain fellowships. So Steve Wong, Wang just obtained the SRS fellowship. Yeah. And back to the Shrine system. The Shrine is very supportive of that concept. So our local board is supportive of those fellowships with reference to time off. And then what we have them do, meaning the recipient like Steve, when he comes back from his SRS traveling fellowship, he will present to the board – and what he's going to present to the board is not, you know, how much fun he had and how much beer he drank. He's going to present to the board what information he learned that he's going to bring back and better the care of our kids. So it's a, it's a really good way to reinforce to the board that these traveling fellowships are really important. Sarah Nassoff has one with a limb, whatever, the limb lengthening society. Oh, sorry, yeah. 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 So, and she'll do the same thing. She'll bring it back because I, I think what happens in your career, Nick, is as you get better, whatever that means, right? Better, smarter, I'm not sure what the word is, or you just become more experienced, you can learn quicker because your pyramid now is pretty much toward the top. So having the ability to go and travel and learn from others happens much quicker than it did 10 years ago, right? So I love, I love to go visit people. I, I really, really love to go visit people. And I always learn something and I always bring it back to, my, to the practice. And I think that's the way to keep pushing it. If you, if you go to a didactic meeting and you sit there and watch and watch, that's helpful. But going to visit a star like Gans 
like Dan did, that's a win. And that's where you can really bring stuff and improve your practice. In our practice, for example, for brachial plexus palsies, we started to do contralateral C7 nerve transfer. So you take the C7 from the good side, you transfer it behind the esophagus, and you transfer it to the injured side, right? Big operation. We use our spine surgeons to help expose the cervical spine. But the question people ask me, how did you learn how to do that? Well, my partner, Dan, went to China, right? So he he went to China, he learned that technique, and now it's in our practice and part of our armamentarium. And I think that's what the listener needs to understand. You got to keep learning and you got to keep pushing, you got to keep being innovative. And then you, what you offer to your patients will get better and you'll provide better care. Yeah. So I want to, uh, cause I want to spend a lot of time on the, on the next part and I want to run out of time, but speaking of learning and also traveling, I want to touch a bit on your touching hands project. Um, because my guess is, in addition to all the wonderful work that you've done in Haiti uh, and now, I guess, worldwide, you've probably also learned a tremendous amount um, in terms of how to, you know, manage things where you have fewer resources. Uh, and from a from a lifelong learning perspective, this has to be, you know, one of the strongest points. I, as a, as an aside, I actually spent time as a resident with Greg Mencio on the kids' first trip uh, in in central Mexico, San Miguel. And it was one of the most unbelievable weeks of my life. Um, yeah. my, my partners here do it. So I'd love to know, uh, you know, I'd love for you to speak on it. You sent you were kind enough to send me a, uh, a PDF that you had written that will be published soon that sort of goes through the history of it. But I'd love to talk about this and, you know, about how it came about and where it is now. No, so it's, as you know, it could be one of my favorite topics. We could be here for a couple of days, but, but in essence, I, I, I think volunteering is important. It sounds so corny, and I get it. And people always ask me as they start their practice, you know, how should they incorporate volunteering in their practice? And I think they should incorporate some form of volunteerism in in the practice. The problem is when we come out and practice, we're actually not talented enough to go to some place around the globe and, and operate independent of everyone else. So there's two points there. So when I first came out in 1992... I did volunteer, but I volunteered at Ronald McDonald House. So I didn't volunteer doing hand surgery. I didn't start doing hand surgery till about 2000. So I'd already been in practice eight years and felt, and felt more confident doing hand surgery abroad. So that's point number one. And then point number two is that if you go on a mission, and you know this, Nick, and if you go on a mission with people who have done it before and are talented, you're going to contribute and you're going to learn from them. So some of the operations that I do now are directly related to my colleagues that I operated with on some of the mission work. It's crazy, actually, and it's crazy important. And I think the great thing about volunteer work is you're there for a one reason and one reason only. So if you're spending a week or two with a bunch of guys who really care and are passionate about hand surgery, and that's the only thing they have to do that week, you're going to learn more than you can ever imagine. So I, I never understand or I never figure out who gets more out of a, a mission work. Is it the people that go or the people we treat? And I think it's right. mutually – yeah, it's great. It's mutually beneficial, right? You, you, I, you, I, was, I was shocked when I went at uh, – you know, we would do 11, 12 hours of surgery easy every day, get done at 10 o'clock. We would go out to dinner, have a margarita, get home at midnight and wake up at 6 and I was – 
I don't think I've ever been more refreshed and ready to go the next day. Um, and we did that like four days in a row. It was amazing. Yeah, because you're in the moment. Yeah. You know, I, I, people don't get it. It's the first time you, that you're there for a sole purpose. Your, your phone's not going off. You don't have a, a meeting. It's truly carpe diem. I mean, you're really there for one reason only. And the team is there for one reason only. So it is a very special thing to do, especially if you like it. And I don't think it's for everybody. I think some people, you know, don't like it for for over whatever reason, and that's okay. But for those of us who love it and treasure it, it's just a win-win for both. A win for people that go, and obviously a win for the people that you treat, and obviously a win for the people that you educate while you're there. And and that's where this whole started in, in 2000. So I've done mission work or I recall it mission work. I've gone to low and middle income countries well before this, we started touching hands. So touching hands didn't start till 2014, but I've always had some time devoted to going somewhere to help somebody. I gotcha. Now, when you, when, uh, when I read through the manuscript that you'd sent me, you mentioned that your first team had 11 team members. I'm curious now that you've been doing this for a while, what makes a good international team? Is there a minimum number of members? Are there, uh, is it a minimum breakdown <laughs> of members that, that you really need? I think it depends on any given country. So as we've expanded, we've kind of tailored the mission and the mission sides to the country that we go to. So you're right. Back in 2014, our only goal was to do one mission. So when I became a president, I said, we have to do one mission for the Touching Hands Project. And we went to Haiti, like you said. And what I decided to do, I was going to take people who had done mission work before, um, who were not going to complain about the water being cold or the lights going out or anything, right? So, right. The, that, so that group of people that went for the first time were all people who were experienced in volunteer work, right? And then since we've expanded, then, of course, we add new members and we, have, and we have people who have not participated in volunteer work. But that first group of people, is, they have a special place in my heart because they went to the unknown. We, I had never been to Haiti before. We chose Haiti because we could get there. We chose Haiti because it was so poor. And we chose Haiti because there was a connection with the Adventist Hospital. And there was a local orthopedic surgeon that was there that we thought could help us. And it was, it was memorable. And then... That's what we reported to the membership when we came back in, in to, I guess in September, we reported to the membership. And, and you, you said that in your, in the manuscript that mentorship and guidance were really necessary for the, for success. So you got done with the first trip, or I guess it was the first couple trips. And then you really looked for assistance elsewhere. Cause this really is sort of a new concept for all of us, probably less so to you because you've done it in the past and in other avenues, but the concept of running this almost like a business. And so you uh, met with Bill McGee. Can you talk to the listeners about who he was and what he offered for you? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great story. So when we decided to start touching hands, we quickly realized that we were in over our heads. Like this was, you know, the big hairy audacious goal or the BHAG. This was the too big for us. Right. And there was no way that we could do this. The hand society had never organized outreach under a single umbrella or single pillar. So we looked around at who had been extremely successful and nobody has been more successful in my mind than Bill McGee who started Op Smile, and he started it. 
He literally started it. So I called him and I said, this is what we're thinking about doing. Can we come visit you in Norfolk, Virginia? So we went to Norfolk, Virginia, where his headquarters is located. And we, we walk in the door and it says, well, you're going to meet with Dr. McGee for a half hour. And then you have all these other meetings. And Nick, I was like brokenhearted. Right. Thinking, wait a second. We were trying to get this going. I'm going to meet with Bill McGee for a half hour. And then I have all these meetings about, you know, supply chain and semantics. And I, and I get it. It was really important and legal stuff. Right. But what I, what they didn't tell me is that Bill McGee was going to go to every meeting with me, with us. I know. Isn't it a wow? It was such a wow. So it was, you're right. It was a half hour with him alone. And then the next eight hours, he just went with us and he took all this time with us and he gave us all this advice so this goes way back to the beginning of this conversation. You need mentorship when you're going to try and do something big. And we've made a lot of mistakes along the way with touching hands, but we've had a lot of successes. And a lot of those, a lot of the sounding board has been Bill McGee, actually, because he started OpSmile as a grassroots organization, just like we started touching hands as a grassroots organization. And he's been incredibly successful. They do something like 60 to 80 missions a year prior to the holy pandemic. Cow. I know it is a holy cow, right? And we forged a relationship with them. So, for example, they help with some of our supply shipping when we're back up and running. So we can ship supplies through Norfolk, through their pallets, through their connections. They have this great master list of what can go to certain countries, what can't go to certain countries about their expiration dates. And it's really been a fantastic relationship. But Bill McGee clearly deserves a fair amount of credit for uh, Touching Hands being successful. I think who deserves the most credit is actually the membership. You know, when we proposed this concept of outreach in 2014, we had no idea what was going to happen. We had no idea. We'd be like, oh, here's a BHAG. Let's see what happens. And then um, much to my surprise, and I think a lot of people's surprised, the membership just bought in. I mean, hook, line, and sinker. And that's what has happened to Touching Hands. And we've expanded it to, you know, as you know, it's, so now we have a, a domestic side of it and we have the international side. So the domestic side has also been huge. And that was actually started by John Seiler. Yeah. Right? Who we know well. You know well. My residents uh, go and do their, uh, their uh, free care day. Yes. So John Seiler, and I'm sure you've heard this story, Nick, but I'll repeat it for people who are listening. So we had stumbled with international, well, I'm sorry, domestic outreach. And the things we stumble, stumbled with are the LNLs, the licensure and liability. And John was at his surgery center. And John really wanted to do volunteer work, but he was strapped by his practice and his family and other commitments. And he literally said to the surgery center, what do you think about if? Right. If we donate the surgery center, if we donate our time, if we donate the supplies, would you be willing to do it? Because they have licensure and liability because they're all in Atlanta. Right. And that's what start. And that is exactly how it started. And now it's all over the country. So we have this. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's uh, it's in it's been in Nashville. It's been in San Francisco. It's been in Dayton. It's been in Philadelphia. It's a long list of domestic outreach programs. Because there are so many people, as you know, Nick, in this country who don't have insurance 
or are terribly underinsured. I mean, I saw a patient last week whose their deductible is thirteen thousand dollars. Right? Yeah. It's crazy. That's crazy. So we can take care of that kid either at an outreach or we can do it at the shrine and and avoid them paying thirteen thousand dollars as a deductible. It's just too much money for most people to afford. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the other thing that has been uh, super helpful to you, and, and I love this term, I actually circled this term, was corporate social responsibility, which I thought of, uh, especially in, given the recent election, is something that I was, and, and also living in Georgia, where I'm continually bombarded by political ads, but corporate social responsibility sounds like something that I would hear on the, you know, coming across the radio or on the TV uh, these days. But it's imperative uh, for you to, to have a successful um, mission, right? It's imperative. So what people don't realize is that the corporate sponsors for Touching Hands typically on any given year give somewhere between two hundred and fifty dollars and $300,000 in product. Now, if it's unbelievable, right? Because most endowments, like our endowments, we have an endowment for Touching Hands. And the endowment is give or take about $5 million. That sounds like a lot of money. Actually, it's going to go, it's going to be closer to six or seven by the end of the year, but actually it's not a lot of money because just like the endowment of the Shriners, the endowment for the touching hands can only spend 5%. So if you think about it, let's say it's $5 million. If we spend 5%, that's $250,000. If we had to spend $250,000 on supplies, we'd have no money for the missions. Right. Right. So it is a lot of money and it's a lot of, it's a lot of pushing corporations to give. But the story behind it, Nick, is fascinating. So we started this obviously in 2014. And we went up to Stryker in, uh, in New Jersey. And there was a guy in there named Vivian Masson. And Vivian Masson, lo and behold, has been on mission work with Bill McGee. Crazy small world, isn't it? So we pitched this to Stryker to give us money back then initially. And Vivian Masson said to me, Scott, listen, I will write you a check right now. Tell me how much you want. I will write you a personal check, right? But I can't propose this to our, our shareholders until you have more to show. Great advice, Nick, right? Yeah. So then, because we'd only done one mission, right? So we're asking for, we're asking for money. You yeah, know, yeah, that was your pilot grant. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So then when, after we got it going, we went back to Stryker, and now they support a singular mission. And as part of their support, they're allowed or offered the opportunity to send a Stryker person to participate as a volunteer. But it's a great story. Vivian Masson, again, it was one of those moments, Nick, where you're like, he's right. Right. Right? He can. Well, he, he sees the ROI, right? I yeah, mean, exactly. He has seen that probably in person. Right. So now, exactly. So now when the person from Stryker goes on the missions, typically to Honduras, you know, they come back and they put a little blurb in their Stryker magazine and it gets sent to all the employees and, and then they buy in more. So they've been very, very good for our organization. But other organizations, other sponsors, like even Synthes, which is no longer Synthes, has been extremely helpful from supplies and stuff. Yeah, well, you know, it, uh, I mentioned the ROI, and and I was shocked. I did not know about this Lancet Commission in 2014. I, I was wondering if you'd sort of 
summarize it. But I was thinking about it yesterday because they did make the mention that a surgical treatment program on a global scale is equivalent to a vaccination program. And as you know, I got my COVID vaccine yesterday and I thought, wow, I mean, this, the, what I had yesterday, I think is one of the, you know, the, 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 a point in my life that I'll remember forever. And to think that, you know, you have the ability on a global level to have an equivalent impact through providing surgical care in underserved areas uh, is pretty remarkable. Well, Nick, I think that Lancet commission was huge for surgical missions. I think prior to 2000 and I think that's 2014 prior to that commission, right? Surgical missions were the ugly stepchild. And, you know, most of the money that was raised for mission work did go to malaria and HIV and tuberculosis. But when the commission put it together and realized, for example, that 2 billion people lack access to basic surgical care, uh, some of the numbers are just staggering. And that if you can treat those injuries, those people not only get better, but they get back to work. Right? The stat that I always quote is, if you look at the number of operations done in the, in the world, it's about 250 million, and only about 3 or 4% are done on the poorest one-third of the world's population. That is the one I, I, I had highlighted as well. That is just staggering. Staggering, actually. Yeah. So I think what people need to realize is, from an orthopedic standpoint, if you can make somebody walk better, if you can make somebody um, use their hands more, then they can, they can contribute to the society, and the number is X-fold. So the big thing we're doing right now from touching hands, especially why the pandemic is really limited to what we can do internationally, is we're trying to focus on outcomes, but not the standard you know, outcomes that we talk about, but perpetuating what does it really do to a person in that country when we make them better and put them back to work. So Rob Kamal is out of Stanford. His group is really working hard on, on establishing some type of electronic medical records that can be used across the globe and then some type of outcome measure that we can make a difference or show that we make a difference with reference to helping people get back to work and back into ambulating. So uh, you mentioned uh, uh, a little bit before about uh, the, some of the keys to a successful team. One of the things that I remember most from my time with uh, with Greg Mencio down at Kits First was actually not the surgical component, but the aftercare component on a couple of levels. First of all, we would do, you know, bilateral proximal femoral osteotomies and uh, pelvic osteotomy, and the kid would get a single caudal shot by uh, this unbelievable anesthesiologist we had and go home on Tylenol and barely make a peep. So that was pretty cool. But I think that the other thing that Mance really uh, uh, sort of drove into my head while we were there is the importance of follow-up. Um, and probably hand is, is even more important. I mean, on, for a lot of what we were doing when we were down there, all, all you need to do is take off the cast and let the kid go. But hand requires such a therapeutic aftercare. How do you manage that? And, and, and how critical is that when people who may be listening are thinking about going out and setting something similar up? So I think follow-up is extremely critical. It, and what we have done is, again, dependent upon the particular place. So, uh, for example, when we go to Ethiopia, uh, the pediapods will, will do the follow-up for us, right? When we go to Guatemala... There is an orthopedic surgeon that does the FOP that we actually pay to do follow-up. 
Uh, we use a lot of WhatsApp. Yeah. Look at our, yep, it's a great way to look at patients post-op. But you do have to be careful. You do not want to cut and run. Right? You, you need to be vested into their post-operative care. The other thing that we've done a lot of, Nick, is we're starting to we all work on bringing therapists routinely. So most of our outreach missions now bring a therapist, and we try and either educate the local therapist or sometimes it's not even a therapist on how on what to do after surgery and that's been extremely helpful so we have handouts we bring a therapist they bring a splint pan they sometimes will fabricate the splint that the patient is going to need after the cast is removed prior to surgery there's all sorts of interesting ways to facilitate follow-up but it's very important that the patient is not just dumped off and, and not followed up. So that's important, actually. And I think it, one of my point is it just varies on where we go, but we have to ensure there's adequate follow-up. And especially if there's a complication. Somebody's got to be able to handle the complication. Right? I mean, Does we did one. the type of surgery you do? In other words, if you look at it and you go, oof, like if this goes downhill, because I always worry about that in spine. You know, if you leave somebody paralyzed and then get out of the country, that's, that's, that's really challenging. It's very, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's devastating for everybody, for the surgeons, for the patient, for the family. So it's a great question. So there are clearly things that you can't do in low- and middle-income countries, and you shouldn't do if, if they're too dangerous. If you're doing a big operation, though, that could have a problem, you need to do it early in the week. Right. So, yeah, exactly. You can't be doing, for example, uh, a big spine on the Friday before you leave on Saturday. But right. you, can do, you can do a big spine earlier in the week and, and watch them carefully. There's always a question, though, Nick, how much is it worth it? In other words, if it takes a lot of resources to do a big operation that has a high risk, is it worth it? And I think sometimes the, the answer is no, actually. And I think that's a, a difficult decision. You know, there's um, – Nick, what's the spine guy from New York? Yeah, I was just about to say, Ohanaba – Boachi has yeah. sort of, you know, he's, he has, you know, looked at that to a T. That's why he's got, you know, 30 kids in Halo at any one point and just try, you know, rather than doing 30 vertebral column resections. Yeah. And as you know, and he's a great surgeon, oh, yeah. he has clearly had his share of bad complications because they're really bad curves. So there is some risk in those big bad curves when you're doing column resections. Yeah, and he uses the, the other guys from Ethiopia that he uses to help him a lot bring patients to his hospital. But I, I, I do think you need to be careful, and you don't want to hurt somebody, and you clearly don't want to paralyze somebody or kill somebody. That would be really bad. But surgery is risky. We have the same thing here in Philadelphia, and I'm sure you do in Atlanta. There are bad outcomes, and there's nothing to a bad outcome. Yeah, and now with with the. Uh, with the orthopedic spine world, um, for example, my partner, Dennis DeVito, goes uh, down on a regular basis, uh, and he has a lot of kids with vector rods in. And I think vectors for young patients who uh, have severe deformity are a pretty nice way to manage it because in the grand scheme of things, it's not, it doesn't require 50 pedicle screws, and you know it's something that sort of holds the spine open. But the big downside is it needs to be lengthened every six months. And so he, you know, he tries to go down every uh, a couple times a year to do lengthenings. Do you have a thoughts on how often, like, you know, can can you do this as a one time deal, or do you need to go down on a regular basis uh, for adjustments, if you will? Right. It's, so we don't have the same issue that spine 
has the guy I was thinking of Rick Rhodes. So Rick Rhodes is in Africa and helps watch you with some of the lengthenings. He's not a actually an orthopedic surgeon, but he learned how to do lengthenings in smaller operations, which is just goes to show that, that you don't need to be an orthopedic surgeon. But I th- <laughs> right, exactly. But I think the thing that is important, or the question is, you need to go back. So if you if you're going to establish relationships, if you're going to you know, teach a man to fish. You need to go back to the same place over and over. So for touching hands, we have places that we go back and back and back and back because we're trying to make a difference. Saying that, there are some places you go to where you're like, this is not going to work. We're not coming back. We're not going to invest our time and effort. We only have so much money. There's not enough buy-in from the local community. That's a difficult decision, but it's a very important decision because you can't waste the limited resources that you have. Yeah, I agree. Um, you 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 you've mentioned the pandemic has changed things. I'm curious if you have thoughts on what the impact of that will have on missions over the next, say, two to three years. Because you know, as, as I mentioned, I got vaccinated yesterday. My hope is that first world countries are going to be you know on a somewhat accelerated timeline to get through this. But certainly, a lot of the places that you're going really have a long term uh, challenge ahead of them. And and so, how are you going to get back there uh, in shorter time frame, or how do you, how do you sort of make sure that it doesn't all fall apart now? Well, I think that's the big concern, right, Nick, We're, that it falls apart or we lose our momentum. We've clearly lost a bunch of momentum and the pandemic has taken over everyone's lives. I was reading yesterday about in India, you know, talk about a BHAG, you know, they're going to try and have like the entire country vaccinated in the next six months. Wow. I think, yeah, exactly. And they're going to manufacture, they manufacture some of the vaccinations there now. It's interesting when you read about the methods they have to distribute the vaccines. I mean, obviously it won't be everybody, but if you can get 90, 80% of the population. But I don't know when we're going to be back. We actually have a meeting on Monday night to discuss that ver- that that very that issue because at, at some point we have to get back. But we have to be safe. And I don't know when these countries are going to get a vaccination. I have no idea. So I don't think we're going back in the, in the immediate term. I think what we're going to try and do, Nick, is we're going to try and open our domestic outreach fairly quickly. Yeah. Because then you get a little bit of momentum, right? As long as we can get the, the lawyers not to, not to squash it, right? But right. we can get a little bit. Of, and then international, I think we're going to have to be very selective to where we go. We have a mission slated for... Uh, Ethiopia in the spring, but we're not sure it's going to make it or not. What are your yeah, thoughts? I mean, when well, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think that having gotten vaccinated yesterday, it really is a, a bit of a you know. I, I can't imagine that I'm going to be going maskless anytime soon, and clearly, I need my booster shot in a couple of weeks. But it does give you a little bit more confidence, um, whether it be you know traveling to see loved ones domestically or, you know, potentially internationally, I think if your team can be protected, then you have the opportunity. The challenge I think would be how to make it so that a lot of the things we've done here and, you know, I'm sure children's just like the shrine has been incredibly diligent at looking at ways to minimize risk of transmission in the hospital. So if you could figure out a way so that all of your staff who, who goes is protected and yet, um, you would minimize the risk of transmission between patients who are taking care of, then I think you could probably reestablish it um, on a sooner time frame. Do you think that's going to require local testing? 
It may. Uh, and I think having local testing, but you know, it's even, even here, right. I remember, I remember in what, four months out. So, uh, beginning of August from really the, uh, or maybe it was end of July, I took care of a child who had had a COVID test on July 2nd and she finally got it back July 27th, just in time for her surgery. Like, yeah. you know, and I think that that is probably going to be more of the norm for a lot of other countries that are sort of struggling to come online. And, and that was in the U S which, you know, in theory should have, should have been ahead of, uh, uh, of the curve there. No, but it may require just thinking out of the box. It may require us to bring some form of point of care testing, right? Yeah. Or could, vaccines or vaccines. That's exactly right. You know, especially if, if we have the capacity to, uh, bring vaccines, if vaccines don't require, like I got this, I got the, um, Pfizer? Pfizer one yesterday and Emory's done an amazing job. They basically bought a mall uh, that had gone out of business and the whole first uh, floor of the mall is just refrigeration. Apparently uh, they didn't, I didn't get to see it, but it's got, they've got thousands and thousands and thousands of doses in these deep freeze downstairs. So that obviously wouldn't work for you, but the Moderna vaccine requires less. And I don't know well, and I, I don't know enough about some of the other ones nationally or internationally that have been developed, what they need. But if you could bring those and you could have some sort of point of care, rapid test, uh, th that home test that we've heard about that's coming online, then you could do it. I think that's what we need. We need some type of innovation, back to innovation, so we can restart our outreach projects internationally for sure. I got to tell you, on a personal standpoint, I was jealous when I heard that you had a shot yesterday. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, Bob Chow had a great line that if, if people have questions about the, the safety and efficacy of the shot, look at the, A, the number of physicians who were literally climbing out all over each other to get, <laughs> get in line. I mean, there were 150 people ahead of me. It was like the entire Emory, uh, you know, everybody there was Emory. It was super cool. And then on top of that, how people are, are jealous. And, you know, I've got people who have reached out and said, oh, man, I can't wait to get mine. I mean, when was the last time you said, man, I can't wait to get my flu shot? I know, exactly right. Yeah, I know that I talked to Jim Chang at Stanford. They have 4,000 this month and 20,000 next month. And by then, the entire healthcare organization will be vaccinated. That's envious. That's it's Jim. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's so it's so crazy. I mean, what what a what a point in our lives. So I know I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do. I know you've either got or maybe had already got off of a bike ride today. Is that right? Uh, I've become a Peloton fan in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah. So so I'm curious because you've you're I mean you've spoken a lot about the things that require time and sacrifice. Obviously, the, all things you love in your life, but what what do you like to do for fun? What's your sort of other than uh, you know, sweating to uh, sweating on a bike in a room. Yeah, so it's a good, it's another great question. So I always, again, back to the education residents and fellows, I tell them they should pick their hob hobbies wisely because you're unlikely if you love what you do to have a lot of hobbies. Yeah, right. I mean, that's just like you and I. We don't, I don't have a lot of hobbies. My hobbies are bike riding. I like, I love to mountain bike. Um, I love the second hobby is travel, and the third hobby is probably food. So I'm a, I'm a big foodie kind of guy. And I love to travel, and I love to ride my bike, and I love my family, obviously. My kids have the, the same bug. They like to travel, so it makes it easier. My kids are 26 and 23. Actually, back to the pandemic, the hardest thing for me has been my inability to see my children, actually. And I'm sure I'm not the only one saying that out loud. But there are the things I like to do. And maybe not in that order. Travel would probably be one. Food, no, bike number two, and then food. 
I have yeah. to bike to I have to bike a lot to eat a lot. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that, that sort of pays for your obsession of, with food, right? I, I hear you loud and clear. Yeah, oh, that's great. Um, and then the the last question that I wanted to ask you, and I, I'd sort of alluded to it earlier. You said you were reading something yesterday. I, I love hearing about, um, and actually Don Bay is somebody who I've, who I've sort of uh, swapped books with, but I love hearing about what, what people are reading and what they really find sort of adds uh, interest and, and intrigue to their lives. Do you have any favorite books, uh, either from a leadership standpoint or just in general, that you that you like to gift or that you like to recommend to people? Yeah, I'm reading this book. It's about heart, a physician and hardships. I can't remember the title of it. Um, I can send you the title, Nick. I can't remember it. Perfect. I'll it, add it, it afterwards. It, it, it's physician in arduous uh, positions, or I will, I will get it to you. It's right. It's okay. a, on my dresser. I was reading it yesterday. It's fantastic, actually. But I'll get it to you. I'll text it to you. It is funny that I think that the majority of the people I speak to definitely enjoy reading things that are that they find will help them. On some level, whether it be you know cognitive, emotional, psychosocial, whatever, uh, within their careers, more so than fi- I mean, I, I love a good fiction book. It just it, when when pushed uh, comes to shove, that's sort of the kind of thing that I like too. So, um, oh yeah, well, it takes it away from all the the daily struggles that we're currently going through. I think it's very difficult for everyone right now, and I I, I think people just need to hang in there and stay safe and get vaccinated. That's what we need to do. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it definitely feels like a beginning to the end, though, to, to get the first shot. So hopefully you'll be getting one soon. Too. Do you have any side effects at all, Nick? Uh, you know, I've had uh, a my my shoulder's been a little bit more sore than the flu shot. Uh, and I, I normally have a pretty sore shoulder from the flu shot. But I mean, if that's the that's all I got, uh, one hard night of sleeping on my left side, then I think that, that I made out pretty well. They do make you set, uh, spend 15 minutes uh, sort of in, in a waiting chamber to make sure that you don't develop fulminant anaphylaxis. So yeah, I, 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 they do that everywhere, right? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's part of the protocol. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you got the shot. I'm glad you're feeling well. Yeah, I am too. Well, Scott, I'm gonna. Uh, that's been about almost an hour and a half, and and I really can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this. This was it, you were like made for a podcast, my friend. So oh, this thanks, is great. Um, and uh, and I, I hope that you've uh, get a good ride on the bike today. Hope you get a shot soon, and I really hope, most importantly, that I get to see you again uh, at the next iPos or Pasa. I can't wait to see you again. I really look forward to being safe and together, Nick. Thanks for all your time. 